Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here this morning. How about you? All right. So if you've been around for like the last six weeks, you know that I've been kind of uh, laid up with an immobilization brace on my right arm. And honestly, this week when they told me I could take it off, I was a little bit sad because it's been such a barrel of fun. Uh, I really recommend getting a whole bunch of screws put into your shoulder to any of you sitting out there right now who are thinking, you know what I hate? Sleep. That's not a thing I ever want to do again. If that's you, then tearing your labrum will solve all your problems. It's been an adventure. And the other day I was shaving my head with this arm kind of dangling by my side and I noticed, whoa, I got a lot of loose skin here. So I measured my arms. And I'm sure I've lost muscle mass on both sides from sitting around being kind of sedentary. But my right arm is now almost an inch and a half smaller than my left arm. (laughs) It's whiter too because I haven't seen much sun. But like an inch and a half, if I lost an inch and a half of my waist, I would have to buy all new pants. And for my arm, that's a way bigger percentage. I did nothing for six weeks and like a fifth of my arm is gone. (laughs) It's just not there anymore. And my arm shrinking got me thinking... If that's how fast physically I deteriorate when I'm not doing anything, I wonder if that same thing happens in my soul. Like, how quickly do my hope and my joy and my peace and my love and my faith and my purpose atrophy if I'm not intentional about connecting with the creator who created me for that connection? I suspect the answer is that they all shrivel up more speedily than I could possibly imagine. Like if I don't pray for six weeks, if I don't make use of this connection that I was dreamed up and knit together, like I breathed life into my nostrils to have, something is going to change inside my soul. It can't not change. Change is inevitable. But I look back at the course of my life and I realize that's happened a lot. It's easy to kind of let prayer fall by the wayside, way easier than it is to let your right arm fall by the wayside. You have to try hard to immobilize an appendage, but you don't have to try very hard to forget about prayer. I think one of the biggest reasons that happens, one of the most major reasons we neglect that connection, one of the greatest dangers is that sometimes we pray and God doesn't answer the way we expected him to. He, he kind of relates to us the way that a toddler does. He's a very bad listener and he's disobedient and we get frustrated so we quit praying, which is tragic. And listen, I'm not saying that as a preacher behind a pulpit, like, hey, if you would start praying like I pray, then things would go better in your life all the time. That has not been my experience at all, that prayer results in the perfection of my circumstances. So I'm saying this as a fellow struggler along the journey who has found myself from time to time frustrated with prayer because it wasn't working the way 
that I wanted it to work. And not just for a day here and there, but for entire seasons where I have not made it enough of a priority to connect with my creator. But the terrible spiral of that is that when we let our prayer lives atrophy, we end up spiritually empty. And then we get spiritually empty and we end up desperate. And then in desperation, we try praying again, but often it doesn't work the way that we wanted it to, or it doesn't work the way that it used to. We haven't prayed for a long time. We start again. We're like, I feel like I remember it being better than this. And that happens because, well, that's what atrophy accomplishes. Things don't work the same way they once did. When I realized I had one tiny arm, I really wanted to take a flexing picture because I thought it'd be funny, but I can't because this arm only goes to here. And honestly, it hurts. I know it looks ridiculous, but it hurts pretty bad to get it to here, which is embarrassing. My arm is not only diminutive, it's dysfunctional. But <laughs> like, if we don't use stuff, it doesn't work the same. And I think this happens with prayer. We don't do it for a long time, and then we try again, and it might even hurt. And then at least if you're anything like me, we just say, well, it's not working the way I wanted it to work. It must be God's fault. He doesn't care about me. Like, I've felt like that. And I bet I'm not alone in feeling like that, but I'm not convinced it's the right conclusion. And so as we continue this series today, Wisdom, Smarter Decisions, Fewer Regrets, I want to take some time to talk about what happens when we ask God for good things that matter deeply to us, that seem like things he should do, and then he doesn't do them. I want to kick it off by asking you a question. When it comes to your relationship and communication with God, if God doesn't answer your prayers the way you think he should, does that change what you think of God? I know there are a lot of us who don't want to answer yes to that question. We know that the Sunday school answer is no, but the truth is when prayers go unanswered or seem to go unanswered, when we don't hear the yes that we're looking for, when we can't understand why God is doing what he's doing, these questions well up inside of us. Do you even care? Are you really all-powerful? Are you making wise decisions up there? And the greatest danger to our souls and our futures when that happens, when God isn't obeying the way we wanted him to obey, is doubt. Doubt starts to creep in, and doubt causes us to neglect our relationship with God, to neglect prayer, and then it results in our souls and our hope and our joy and our purpose atrophying and, and shriveling up inside of us. But every single one of us in this room has been in that space, and I'm guessing that many of us are in that space right now. And so today, I want to give us some wisdom about why God doesn't always answer prayers the way we want Him to. And I also want to give us some hope for those situations of frustration and desperation when we can't understand what He's doing and all hope seems lost. So first things first, the Bible says that prayer is communication. And in any communication, in any relationship we have, there are things that make a difference in that communication. And there are some things that make a difference in our prayer lives in the way that we speak to God and in the way God answers us. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but here are four major things that make a difference when we pray. Number one, your motive matters. Where your heart is at when you're praying makes a difference. James 4.3 tells us when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. Why you ask 
for what you ask for has an effect on how God answers. Like the only time in the entire Bible Jesus is critical of prayer is when it's self-serving and disingenuous. At one point, him and the disciples are walking along and the Pharisees are standing on street corners and they're just shouting these loud, flowery prayers and Jesus looks at them and he's like, what a waste of time. They're not praying because they want to connect with the heart of God and they're not even praying for what they say they're praying for. They're just trying to be seen and heard so that people will think that they're great super believers or, or, or something like that. Their motives aren't pure. I think all of us understand that. We know what it is to pray like that, not shouting on a street corner. We haven't done that, at least most of us, because like, we live in a different era than the Pharisees. If we did that, people wouldn't think we're cool. They would start handing us sandwiches and loose change and praying we get therapy. But we know what it is to pray with selfish motives, right? We've said those prayers like, God, that girl from work, oh, she is so smoking cute. She's just cute. And like, I know she's not a Christian and she's a little bit wild, but if you could just draw her to yourself so she becomes a Christian so I could date her, that would be amazing. Actually, even better yet, draw her to me, make her attracted to me, and then I'll start dating her. And after she's in love with me, I'll point her toward you, Jesus. And it's not because she's hot, it's because I'm an evangelist. It's for your kingdom, Lord. We pray like, oh, Lord, that Mega Millions jackpot is getting way up there. And for your kingdom, like that Build the Future Fund at Revision is not going to build itself. So I promise, Lord, if you, just, if you just give me that, once I have enough money, I'm going to become generous. I'll give half of it back to you for to build your kingdom and stuff. And God's looking at us going, okay, you didn't even give a tenth now, which is a small thing I asked you for. You'll come up with plenty of excuses later not to give half. We just are experts at self-deception, but the book of Proverbs reminds us that all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So your motives matter. Second thing that matters, your sin matters. Psalm 66, 18 and 19 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Now, the church used to talk about this idea a lot, like a, a lot, a lot, and the church talks about this idea now, never. Never, ever. Chances are, if you grew up in church and you're over the age of 40, you have heard an entire sermon about how sin in your life inhibits the effectiveness of your prayers. And if you're under 40, you may never have even heard it spoken aloud in a church before. And I think the reason the church quit talking about it was it was this like reactionary pendulum swing because for a while it was this overemphasis. And it let people believe that there's a direct line between your behavior and God's blessings. Like any time God doesn't answer any prayer exactly how you want it, it's just because you're a terrible sinner. And if you were just a better person and you faithed a little bit harder and you named it and claimed it, then God would make all of your wildest dreams come true. And that's a total load of garbage. And it also gave people the impression that God only listens to perfect people. Thank God that's not true because none of us are checking that box except my wife. It's not true. She's not either. I just want to score brownie points. But like God does not only listen to perfect People And so the church realized, oh man, there, there's this bad idea going there that there's the, you know, the, the direct through line between behavior and, and blessings. And so we quit talking about it, but we shouldn't have because the Bible does say that sin matters. It changes the way we connect with God. And that's true in any relationship. Any brokenness you have in a connection with another person changes the way that you speak to them and the way they respond to you. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, any unanswered prayers in our lives should serve as an alarm that maybe there's sin we haven't repented of. 
Not evidence that's the reason, just a warning light on the dashboard of our lives that it's time to step back and ask the question, am I good with God? Or is there an area in which he needs to get my attention? Proverbs 15, 29 said, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I once heard Francis Chan, who's a pastor from California, talking about a young man in his congregation who'd been praying desperately for healing and, and nothing was happening. And so he came and talked to him after a service one day. And over the course of their conversation, Francis discovered that he'd been engaged in an inappropriate physical relationship with the girl from the church. He'd been kind of pressuring her into situations she didn't want to be in. And Francis Chan, who is not known for beating around the bush at all, ever, looked at this kid and said, if you were fooling around with my daughter, using and abusing her, would you have the guts to come ask me to my face for a favor? And the guy said, I never really thought about it that way before. And Francis said, well, start thinking about it that way. You're mistreating a daughter of God. And I don't believe for one second that he's withholding healing from you as punishment because he's angry at you, but I do believe he wants to get your attention. So sin matters in the way God answers our prayer because sometimes he has to take us and wake us up from the broken present we've chosen to the beautiful future he created us for. All right, the third thing that matters is your faith. Matthew 9 tells the story of these blind guys and they heard Jesus was walking by and they start crying out on the side of the road, Lord Jesus, heal us, heal us, heal us, heal us. And Jesus walks over and he's like, all right, do you believe that I can? And they're like, Yeah. We know you can. And verse 29 says, Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. I just love that so much. There's so many stories like this where Jesus responds to people's faith. And the book of James tells us when we pray, we should pray with faith and not doubt. And I look at my own life and think, I don't know that I'm very good at that. Like, are you? When you ask God for things, do you pray expectantly like he just might show up? I remember way back in the day when our oldest son, Jimmy, was going to kindergarten. He'd had a really rough year the year before at preschool. He just cried almost every day before he went, and it was exhausting for him, but even more for Jenny and me. And so as we approached kindergarten, we weren't really sure what to expect, but I think we were preparing for the worst. We spent a lot of time praying about how it would go, and then on his first day of school, this new school that he was going to, where he didn't know anybody because we just moved to Iowa, we sat down, and and me, Jenny, and Jimmy just prayed together over his school day and prayed that it would be great and then sent him off. And after school, I can still remember this conversation. I asked him, how'd it go, buddy? And he said, it was so fun. I love kindergarten. And I was shocked. It just wasn't what I expected to hear at all. And you could see it on my face. And I will never forget the look of this little kindergartner incredulously staring at me like, why are you shocked? And he said, well, I prayed that it would be good. (laughs) Like, duh, dad. (laughs) Turns out he prayed like God was going to answer. I prayed a lot more hours than he did kind of figuring God wasn't. And in a moment, I got humbled by a kindergartner who reminded me that faith matters. And that's not to say you have to have 100% faith without any doubt whatsoever or God will not answer you. God's not up in heaven offended by our doubts, like, how dare you question me? No. If that's how we worked, we should all quit praying right now because we are not getting to that level of certainty 
this side of heaven. But he doesn't work like that. Faith does matter, though. Because when we pray with faith that God is listening and that he might move, it shifts our level of expectancy. It changes the game for us the way that it changed the game for kindergarten Jimmy. And it changes our perspective, too. It allows us to look out and see the world with transformed eyes, to notice where God is moving and how God is moving, even when it isn't the way we expected him to. So faith matters. And the fourth thing, your future matters. This one shifts gears a little bit, but it's an important lens to look through when we talk about God answering prayers and the fact that he sometimes doesn't do what we think he should do. A different way of saying this is that God's plans and God's will matter. Sometimes we don't get exactly what we want, when we want it, how we wanted it, because God is doing a bigger, better thing than we're aware of. Because he's shaping us. Because he's hammering us into the shape of the vision that he has for our lives. Because he says there are good works prepared beforehand that he stamped our names on. And he is aiming us down a different path than the path we thought we were supposed to go down. Or the path we wanted to go down. And sometimes that lack of prayer, sometimes that sense that God has just abandoned us and he isn't listening. Is simply God's way of shaping in us an endurance for prayer of reminding us that we're created for something more than treating him like a genie. We're created to pursue him in relationship because he loves us. Like seriously, think about it for a minute. If you got all of your prayers answered exactly the way you wanted, exactly when you wanted, what would that do to the way you pray? If I'm being honest, I think for me, I would slip into a spot where I kind of treated God like a vending machine in the sky. Just put in my quarter and get out what I want. But God is a father who loves me and desperately wants relationship with me. And so sometimes he doesn't answer prayers the way that I want on my timeline because he's teaching me to keep pursuing him because there's beauty and meaning and purpose and a future that are found in pursuing him. And for all of us, this is not an easy thing to do. Endurance isn't easy. Perseverance isn't easy. But we do well to remember in praying the words of the great modern philosopher Axel Rose. Or really Bob Dylan, and I'll fight you that the Dylan version is the better version of the song, but probably brought to more eardrums by Axel Rose. Keep knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Just keep knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, trusting that God's got a bigger plan for your life than you do. I read an article not that long ago about this teenage girl who started losing her sight in high school. And as her parents were driving her home for a a doctor's appointment where she learned she would be blind within the year, she started to panic. She's like, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to finish high school? Will boys even still like me? I'm not going to be an artist now and that's everything I ever wanted to be and I don't know what's going to happen in my life. And then you fast forward a couple decades and Jennifer Rothschild is a famous artist, a nationwide speaker, an accomplished author, a wife and a mother who says this about her own life experience. One of the hardest lessons I ever had to learn personally is that God uses difficulty to bring about great things for us. My hero, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been in a wheelchair since she was a teenager, puts it well when she says, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
And Rothschild just continued talking about what an incredible blessing it is that God's been able to do some of the amazing things he's done in and through her life, despite its unexpected and unwanted twists and turns. Man, when it seems like hope is lost and God is not showing up, it's a difficult place to be in. Because when it comes to prayers, God doesn't answer the way we wanted him to, the way we expected him to. We got to remember our futures matter and they matter more to him than they do to us. He's writing a better story than the one we would write for ourselves even when it doesn't feel like it. So all four of those things matter, but what do we do when we're praying and, and none of those lenses quite seem to fit? What do we do when we actually can't make sense of it? When we're asking God for things he tells us are important to him, he tells us matter to him, and he's still not acting on our behalf. How do we deal with the disappointment and the pain and the frustration of situations where brokenness is occurring and God should be doing something and he isn't doing it. And we're not perfect. We're not perfect in life. We're not perfect in faith and we're not sinless, but we aren't praying selfishly. We're praying with pure motives and pure hearts and we're crying out and God isn't showing up. How do we deal? And the truth is every single one of us will experience that at some point in our lives and it will be a threat. It'll be a threat to our faith because in that moment, our enemy will whisper into our souls that we should quit connecting to the creator, that he doesn't care about us, that we should allow our souls and our futures and our love and our hope to atrophy and die. But I want to talk this morning about how we can hold on to hope when hope seems lost. So if you have a Bible, will you crack it open to Psalm 22? It's almost dead in the middle. If you don't have one, you can grab one from the next steps table out there. And if you, if you want, you can follow along on the screen. We've been kind of jumping around Scripture so far this morning, but I want to stop and dig into Psalm 22 because it's one of the most raw, real passages about prayer in the entire Bible. It starts with David in this space of complete desperation where he thinks God has abandoned him and it ends with David feeling incredibly hopeful, reminded of who God is and what God's doing. It begins like this with words that are familiar to, to many of us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my or why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You ever felt like that? You ever prayed like that? I have. I've been there. And I appreciate these words so much because A, the God of the universe, who by the way had not forsaken David, didn't get angry and smite him with a lightning bolt for daring to doubt. It wasn't like, David, you're going to question me? No. Instead, shockingly enough, what God did was, was took David's questions and David's doubts and put them into the book he gave us through which he reveals himself. There's something powerful about the fact that God did that. And B, I love this so much because David is just gut level honest with God. Like on his soul level, he pours out how he's feeling and, and God invites us to do that same thing. There are a couple of things I think we can learn from Psalm 22. And here's the first one. Actually, before we get there, I want to press pause and pre-apologize for something. 
I made an acronym today, okay? And I try hard not to do corny stuff like that very often. But I grew up Baptist, and sometimes it happens by accident. Like this one, I was writing out a bunch of stuff, and I realized three-fourths of it is there. And my old pastor, Pastor Tom, would be disappointed in me if I didn't just finish it. So for all you old Baptists out there, and for Pastor Tom, and for people who need help remembering things, I got an acronym, all right? So the first thing we can learn from David in Psalm 22 is to honestly tell God how you're feeling. God doesn't get his feelings hurt, and he doesn't get angry when we're honest about where we're at. Whether we're broken or things are beautiful, whether we're hurting or we're happy, God is okay with us letting him know that. He knows anyway. And he says, hey, listen, I am willing to listen to where you're at. Please honestly pour out your hearts and tell me. All right, step two is observe God's faithfulness in the past. When we find David at the beginning of Psalm 22, he's in a really rough spot. He feels completely abandoned, and he could choose to despair in that moment. He could just wallow in self-pity, but instead he goes searching for hope. And where he finds it is in God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 3 says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out and were saved, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is good stuff, right? David's sitting here feeling like, oh, man, has God abandoned me? And then he looks back, and he says, wait, 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 wait. I'm not the first person to ever cry out to God. I'm not the first person to ever feel like God wasn't listening. My ancestors did, and ultimately he heard them, and he saved them. So in this moment when I think God has forgotten me, I know better. Because I know who God is, and I know that's not what he does. In this moment when it feels like my prayers are just vanishing into thin air, I know better because I know who God is, and I know that's not what he does. Because looking back at who God's been and how God's moved in the past allows us to get perspective that energizes us to move forward. And it also allows us to get perspective that sometimes it's a good thing God doesn't answer our prayers. How many of you can look back and say, Thank you, God, for not saying yes to that prayer. Like some prayer in our lives, every girl in here prayed for a pony. Most of you are glad you don't own one and have to clean up after it, right? There are times when we ask God for something and we feel mad and miserable when he says no. And then we look back and realize, wow, he was doing a way better way bigger thing than I thought. The late great pastor and theologian Timothy Keller tells the story often of how he was dating this girl in college and he just thought she was the one. She was funny and wonderful and amazing. So he was just praying, God, please let this work out. Please let this work out. Please let this work out. And it crashed and burned and she dumped him and he was just a wreck. And then a few months later, he met some chick called Kathy and 40 years of marriage to Kathy later, Tim Keller sat down and wrote this. I find that God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. I find that God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. So observing God's faithfulness in the past gives us a little bit of perspective that helps us move forward. And step three is participate in community. There's this whole like horizontal relationships with other people theme that happens in Psalm 22 and verses nine and 10. Specifically, David talks about birth and his mother. He says, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast from birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I think when we're struggling in our relationship with God, when our prayers don't seem to be working, when we're feeling most frustrated and isolated, 
Community is critical because doubt grows in darkness and loneliness. The crazy thing is there's an inclination inside all of us to withdraw from community in difficult times. To say, like, I, just, I don't want anyone to know. I don't want them to figure out what's going on in my life. And i got to fix myself before I can be a part of all of this. But the danger in that withdrawal is that once we've separated ourselves from community, doubt becomes the only voice that's speaking in our souls. God gifts us one another so that through this community we call the church, his voice can thunder in our souls when we most desperately need it. And the final step is this, embrace God's promises. Christianity has a unique perspective through which to view the world. Uh, We live in a society that sees the future as a frightening and scary unknown. People panic all the time about like, what's going to happen to the climate? What's going to happen to the planet? What's going to happen? 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 But Christianity does not live through that lens. We know that the end is already written. We're not stepping into a great unknown. We're living from the perspective of the end, working backwards. Because God said, in the beginning, I created everything. And then sin broke the world. And so in the end, I'm going to set everything right and make everything new. But in the middle, hey, church, here's a pen. Help me write the story. Be a part of what I'm doing to create a better future for all the people around you. Guys, that's what God's inviting us into right here, right now. And we can do it because we know how the story ends. Like, we don't know the exact path the world's going to take to get there. If you look around, it seems like it might be a pretty wild ride. But we do know that we get to be a part of the story God is writing. I talk to so many people these days. and they're, they're scared about that. So many people who are frustrated with the way the culture is, who are, who are nervous for their kids. Like, I can't believe we have to live in this time. I'm so sad that my kids have to grow up in a time that's this divisive and hate-filled and, and just seemingly off the rails. Like, what in the world are we going to do? I don't think it's an accident that we're here right now. I don't think it's an accident that God gave us the kids that he gave us when he gave us the kids that he gave us. I think we are here because God wants us here and it is our time. One of my favorite quotes ever is from St. Augustine. 1,600 years ago, he wrote, good to- or, bad times, hard times. People keep talking to me about bad times and hard times, but I say let the church live like Christ and the times shall be good. We are the times because we are the church. Such as we are, so are the times. Because we can embrace God's promises and step forward into an unknown, into the middle of a dark world, desperately yearning for hope because we have the hope the world is desperate for. This is our moment to be the church, to stand up and invite every life that we crash into to know Jesus, to be a part of his community. It's our time to be a part of writing the story God wants to write in this generation. And we can do it by embracing his promises because we know how the story ends. That's why David was able to be hopeful in Psalm 22. I mean, he started it off by saying, God, you've completely abandoned me. And then he closed the poem by writing this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of all the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has 
done it. Why is David so hopeful? Because he sees what he doesn't see. He knows who God is and he understands that his perspective is pretty small, that he's only seeing a couple seconds of this incredible movie God is making and the whole movie is gonna be better than sometimes those few seconds seem. Like imagine if I showed you only 60 seconds of a movie. Would you be able to understand the whole plot? Like say you're an alien from an outer space and, and you land on earth and I showed you 60 seconds of the movie Valkyrie, which is the true story of the July 20th plot where Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg planted a bomb in a conference room in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, and other major Nazi architects. If all you saw was him putting a bomb in a room and leaving, you'd be like, that guy's a terrible murderer. He's evil. And you would have come to the wrong conclusion because your perspective was small and you didn't know the whole story. Sometimes we just have to have faith that God knows the whole story, that his perspective is big and that the arc of history is redemption. The arc of history is all things set right and all things made new. The arc of history is hope. It's hope. Honestly tell God how you're feeling. Observe God's faithfulness in the past. Participate in community and embrace God's promises. Hope is real. There are gonna be times when we pray and God is a really bad listener. There are going to be times when we pray and God is very disobedient to us. And when it happens, those questions are going to come up. Do you care? Are you there? Are you alive? Do you love me at all? And it'll be easy as our souls wander that to allow our prayer lives to atrophy. To allow our joy and our hope and our futures and our meaning and our purpose to shrivel up and die, but I'm here to give you some wisdom from David, who experienced all of that very deeply. Don't stop connecting you to your creator. Even when it hurts, even when we're, we're trying and it's just not working the way that it used to work and not doing what it used to do, and even when it feels like God's silent, we have hope. We have the hope the world needs because we know that he is not silent, and we know that he's not silent because of what he did for us, how he stepped out of eternity into the thread of the human story and gave everything to be with us because Jesus allowed himself to be brutalized and hung on a cross so we could be forgiven and set free. And that, by the way, the cross is God's definitive yes answer to all those questions that ever come up in our souls. Do you love me? Are you good? Do you care? Yes. Yes. And interestingly enough, those words from Psalm 22 that David kicks it off with are super familiar to all of us who are familiar with the story of the cross. Because as Jesus was hoisted into the air, he cried out, Ali, Ali, lama shvakthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we read the Gospels outside of context, if we didn't know any better, we would be thinking that a dying man was feeling abandoned by the Heavenly Father. That Jesus was saying, God is nowhere to be found in my life right now, but that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And every Jew standing at the foot of the cross watching him die knew it. And he wasn't quoting Psalm 22 to say that God had abandoned him. He was quoting Psalm 22, the first line, to remind everybody of the last line. To say, look, in these situations where it feels like God's absent, in the situations where it feels like we have been forsaken, we are not forsaken. God is here and God cares and God wins. Because as the last line of Psalm 22 says, 
the one Jesus pointed everybody to by quoting the first line, he has done it already. It is finished. The victory is won. He has done it for you because he's for you, because he loves you and he created you for a relationship with him and your soul will never be as vibrantly alive as it is in that connection. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you for doing it. Thank you for accomplishing what you accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for forgiveness and thank you for freedom and thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of what you're doing to write a better story for the world, to walk out into a dark and hopeless place and spread light and speak hope because we know who wins in the end and we're working from the end of the story backwards. Lord, would you allow us to be a people in this generation, in these dark days, who walk out and invite people into your love and invite people into your community in a way that writes a better story for our world. Thank you for allowing us to do that. And I pray for all of us as we continue to to navigate a a sin-stained and sin-shattered world, that you would remind us not to let our prayer lives and not to let our connection with you, not to let our souls and our hope and our future atrophy and shrivel up, but instead to find life in the beauty of that connection and to go live it in front of a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.